and welcome to this month's episode of Money Mountaineering with Peter Newerth. We are so excited to have Michael Edisis, author of The Big Investment Lie and The Three Simple Rules of Investing, talking to us tonight from Hong Kong. We're going to hear all about that. Our topic is how this accomplished mathematician and economist sees the world basically and money so i'm just i'm hope cats gibbs i'm thrilled to be here i'm the producer of the show on incandescent radio and incandescent tv pete is just one of my dearest clients so take it away sir all right well thanks very much hope and and thank you michael for joining me i mean this is this is really an, an honor and a thrill to have you who are a really truly accomplished mathematician and economist and almost an actuary from what i understand I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you've done what you've done throughout the last 50 years or so. And um, I'd like to start at the beginning, because back in the 70s, there were a lot of investment uh, houses that uh, went looking for theoretical mathematicians like yourself to um, solve the markets or perhaps bring the bring the mathematical tools to bear on making markets more tractable and potentially minimizing or maybe even eliminating risk while maximizing return. Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out that way, but Michael, can you tell us a little bit about those years and and how you started and why it didn't work out? Uh, Thanks, Pete. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, well, you're asking me to go back to my first, (laughs) the problem will be to keep this short. So I had gotten my uh, PhD in pure mathematics. There was also an applied mathematics department at the university, and we didn't talk to them because uh, they were in the real world, and we wanted to be in the abstract world, and we wanted never to have an application Uh, And this was because it was during the Vietnam War, and it seemed that all the applications of technology were being used for uh, uh, war, development of military uh, equipment, bombs, and so forth. So um, when a a guy in my uh, fellow graduate student said to me, you know, you might want to try this uh, brokerage firm, A.G. Becker, They're, they're doing interesting things with mathematics. I thought, well, okay, I'll go have an interview. The interviewer said, well, I don't know what you're doing, but maybe uh, I don't don't know anything about mathematics. Anyway, they hired me right away. And uh, I'd actually like to strangle that guy who said uh, they're doing interesting things with mathematics because this was simply not true. The, The mathematics I found was very low quality not really relevant to any uh, application, particularly not to investment. In fact, I told a friend, a fellow graduate student in math, uh, after I had been to a couple of conferences where, you know, every presentation had some math or what looked like math in it. And I told a friend, I said, you know what, either these people want to be mathematicians or they want to have do something that has a practical application. If they want to be mathematicians, they're going to have to do a whole lot better math. But if they want to actually have a practical application, this is not it. Mm-hmm. This this math that they pretend to be applying 
does not do what people think it does. I mean, there's sort of there's a, there's a new word that I hear. I start hearing over and over and over again. And I really like this word. The word is performative. It's uh, you, you do something performatively to make it look like you're doing something, not to actually do it. And this this was essentially what applied to the mathematics. It was performative, but I think they didn't realize it because they didn't they didn't know any better in the in this uh, finance field. So that that's that's what happened when I got into it. And I wound up uh, uh, debating uh, speakers. So I I first uh, started out kind of you know from the from the audience. Uh, 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 picking bones with Bill Sharp as he was presenting, who, by the way, I, I don't hold him responsible for any of this. And in fact, he's he's kind of a friend now. Uh, and then I was asked to debate the proposition the capital asset pricing model has no practical value uh, mm -hmm. at the uh, University of Chicago CRISP convention in October 1973. And that was that was a very enjoyable uh, experience. Uh, so, but it did not prevent uh, your employer and and others in the field from making representations about what the math demonstrated and taking those representations out to clients, right? No, not at all. I remember a couple of times uh, Becker had these people they called consultants, but they were basically salesmen. They sold this book full of statistics, all the same statistics shown in graph after graph after graph, but they were the same, just different graphs. And they were about where your pension fund, because most of the clients were pension funds or endowment fund or whatever, uh, where your uh, fund's investment performance rate of return stood uh, among all of those that uh, uh, Becker had data on. And uh, it showed whether it was in the first quartile, second quartile, third quartile, or fourth quartile. And they sold this book full of statistics for $20,000. And when I first learned that, I thought, oh, I must be hearing things. This, this can't be. But this was because of the directed brokerage of the era. The brokerage rates were fixed and very high. Mm -hmm. And so there was an automatic profit, but there was competition to get the brokerage directed to your brokerage firm. So it, just like airlines did before the airline prices were due regulated, they would offer perks. And then and in exchange for the perk, you would agree to direct a certain amount of brokerage. So the, the $20,000 was uh, not a real, well, it was a real number in a sense, because they would direct $20,000 worth of brokerage to A.G. Becker in exchange for getting this book full of statistics and graphs. So this this went on for quite some time before you you finally decided to try to bust everybody and and write your your book about the the big investment lie. But before we get to the big investment lie, I, I'm just curious why you think the, the the narrative didn't fall apart based on you know real life reality meeting the um, all of these theoretical representations. Well, I suppose the reality that you're talking about is that uh, I'm I'm going to give you a quote. Since you mentioned the 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 big investment lie, this may be too self indulgent, but when I wrote this, I liked this quote, and this is true. If you go to a library or if you go and 
crack open a, a journal in, in the finance field, you find lots of mathematics in it. So my quote is, sauntering through the expensive, glossy outputs of the professional investment field, you may glimpse arcane, sophisticated-sounding articles suggesting the discourses of an elite court of exquisitely knowledgeable experts. Yet in spite of the self-serving message trumpeted to both insiders and outsiders by these arcana, we insiders are smart and extraordinarily capable, the actual fact is that professional investors do not do better than the random investment picks of a gaggle of monkeys. And this is absolutely true. Let me give you the most astounding example of this. This, this will not be believed, but it's absolutely true. The biggest university endowment funds, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and so forth, have underperformed the market over the last 20 years by about 1.5% a year. Now, 1.5% may not sound like a lot, but over Sounds 20 years... Just about equal to their investment fees, actually. Exactly, exactly. Now, the, the loss of 1.5% a year compared to what you could have done means the loss of about 40% of your gains over 20 years. So these funds run by professionals, very highly paid professionals, with presumably access to all the, the Nobel Prize winners in economics at their universities have underperformed the market by one and a half percent a year, which, as you mentioned, is exactly the fees that they paid, one and a half percent a year in fees on average. Now, let's just take Harvard. Harvard has a $50 billion endowment, one and a half percent of $50 billion is $750 million that Harvard pays using the probably the, the money of their donors, mm -hmm. their tuition paying students to buy utterly worthless investment services. $750 million goes to buying worthless services. And you can be sure that all the money managers they hire, sometimes they hire as many as 100, are the kinds of people who go to these conferences that I went to where bogus mathematics is presented. So this, this is the, um, as you mentioned, the, the uh, but it's, you know, it's not true. Milton Friedman thought, and you can watch videos, and he has good point, that corporations could regulate themselves because if the consumer, the customer, didn't like what they offered, or if it turned out to be a defective product, the customer would simply not buy that product. Well, you know, um, you're. Um, you know, it's it's so great that you you actually pulled a quote that I had underlined that I was going to ask you about. But on the very <laughs> next page, you also perhaps explain a little bit of this when you say. Uh, when you quote uh, Streetcar Named Desire and how Blanche Dubois says, I don't want reality, I want magic. And isn't that really what's, what we're, we're up against is that the investing public and the people that are out there tr struggling with what to do with their money and where to put it, they want a magic answer. Yeah. 
Let me give you another example. I, I have a friend who um, made quite a bit of money. I, my guess is that he's in the, you know, maybe not a hundred million uh, net worth, but 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 not much less than that. He plays a lot of golf. I'm very grateful to him because he volunteered to read as I was writing the big investment lie and to comment on it. So he was he was helpful. But he invested in hedge funds. Mm-hmm. And I uh, said to him, you, you shouldn't invest in hedge funds. And he said, every time I invest in hedge funds, I lose money. But <laughs> one time, one time he said, oh, I'm going to go meet my hedge fund uh, representative. You want to join us? So I joined him and, and the, the guy who was politically well-connected. Uh, and they just kind of shot the bull. They didn't talk about investment at all. But my friend, Bill, I said, I told you, plays a lot of golf. When I said you shouldn't invest in hedge funds, and he said, uh, I invest in hedge funds, I lose money. He had this kind of look like, you know, what did it say? And basically it said something, what can I do? I know why. Because on the golf course, what are they going to talk about? He's he's playing golf with other wealthy individuals with extra money to invest. Somebody's going to ask him, so what do you invest in? And if he says, I invest in the uh, Vanguard Total Market Index Fund, they're going to say, what? <laughs> that, that, that actually happened to me once. When, when we started Lockwood, we got uh, uh, investment money from Tony O'Reilly, an Irish billionaire and, and uh, formerly a, a star rugby player and then the uh, president of the Heinz Corporation. He's a smart guy. And but he put his son in as the board member of the the company that he helped us start by investing a substantial amount of money in the company. And his son asked me that same question. His son was twenty eight years old. He asked me that question. What do you invest in? And I said index funds. And he said what? I mean, just like that. <laughs> he said, you you know so much. You're so smart. You invest in index funds. Well, that's my friend Bill doesn't want to be shamed on the golf course. Well, I guess, I guess in that, in that sense, also the, the emperor has no clothes is, a, is another way of, of putting it. But I want to move from that to, um, to something actually, you took a little bit of issue in my book, appropriately, I think, where, and it, and it actually wasn't said by me, it was, it was said by somebody else, but it was a, it was a quote of a study that says that 401k investors do better when they manage their own money than professionally managed funds. Now, is that really true? That um, because you you see these these studies quoted that that individuals trying to manage their own money just can't beat the pros. What does the data show? I, I have not seen anything that shows that people managing their own money can't beat the pros. I, I, I don't think that's true. I, I've never seen anything that that uh, purports to show that it is true, although I'm sure that there are such studies because there are thousands and thousands of studies and there are many that are conjured up, uh, but but I haven't seen any uh, any any. So you uh, think it might be just, uh, just cherry picking in order to pull some um, impressive sounding uh, support for the for the notion that you should give your money over to a professional manager as opposed to well sure yeah okay well, well the, the particular uh, 
quote that uh, in your book, which was not yours, it was it was actually from a reputable uh, person who unfortunately didn't didn't know what had been discovered, which was that this company uh, called Dalbar had been getting away with for now. I think they're probably they're still going. That's uh, so it's maybe thirty years getting away with doing simply completely wrong mathematics. Uh, arithmetic. I mean, it's, it's it's that simple. And they claim it shows that, quote unquote, investors underperform their investments. And the implication is that because they time the market badly, mm-hmm. they, they sell after a drop, they buy after the market has risen. And that sounds like it would necessarily time the market badly. But the um, this basically arose from Dalbar doing uh, calculating the rate of return wrong in, wow. in such a, in such a way that it it had to show a very substantial gap between the return on on an investment like a mutual fund and the return that the investor in the mutual fund got, but it's just due to a due to calculating rate of return, completely wrong. But then this myth that they managed to embed in this, in this investor psyche and even the professional investor psyche lived on. And Morningstar believed that it must be true. Many people believe that it must be true. Jack Bull thought it must be true. I, I kind of debated with him about this a little bit uh, myself. It's the only thing that we ever had any disagreement about. You know, it's so supportive of my view that people should take responsibility for their own investors and, and, you know, get help when you need it, but really know when you need help. And a lot of times you think you may need help, you know, but in fact, if you if you think the market is, you know, a place that you want to have your money, put your money in the market, but put it in an index fund where you get the market return and you don't have to rely on somebody picking stocks and trying to beat the market. So Right. I think the uh, the only way that people do underperform the market, uh, investors, naive investors, all investors, professional investors, all of them, they, the, the way that they do routinely underperform the market is by not being in the market all of the time. Mm-hmm. So the be- the best thing to do is to ignore the ups and downs, invest in an index fund, not look at the um, where the market is for like thirty years. I mean, depending on how old you are, for you know, but uh, typically people invest for accumulation at younger ages, and when they're investing for accumulation, the the average time over which they're accumulating is at least 30 years. And so they should simply buy an index fund, ignore what it does completely in the interim, because if they do anything about it, they're likely to take their money out. And that's how they're going to underperform. Right, right. (laughs) So um, now, so we talked a lot about um, how, you know, these, these professional firms in the Wall Street confuse people and get them to believe in magic. Um, 
one of the things that looks like magic to me is that this this imaginary thing uh or this as as i saw uh one uh comic characterize it is basically a number which is that you own when you buy a bitcoin as opposed to something real is worth 35 now i guess almost forty thousand dollars what's what's involved in that magic i mean that's a that's a true magic trick to get to get just a set of numbers worth forty thousand dollars well the simple the simplest explanation of course is bigger fool theory some bigger fool will buy it from me for a, a higher amount and that seems to hold good although i think at this point you can't depend on a bigger fool because the price is already much higher than it uh, you know if you had bought it in 2012 you'd have a fortune now and i i think it's for that reason that there's a craze about it people get the past and the future confused is it money i mean is it real money because it was supposed to change the definition of money wasn't it yep okay as you mentioned i taught the first uh course on cryptocurrency in Hong Kong at the uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology Business School in 2017. In uh, April or maybe May 2017, I had a friend who kept babbling about Bitcoin. I had no idea what he was talking about, absolutely none. So I did something that I've done before several times when I didn't know about something i found i find that i'm not very good at taking a course because i my attention wanders i'm not very good at reading well the first time i did it the topic was international finance and i thought i ought to know much more about that than i did so i got a first i thought about taking a class i thought no that's not going to work then i got a book and a big fat book boring is said i got it i'll teach it <laughs> And and of course I didn't know what it, I mean I I was I was scrambling to stay ahead of the students and I've done this several times so I did it with cryptocurrency I I I, I volunteered to teach it uh, I think at the time the finance department at HKUST was probably thinking you know suddenly we're hearing a lot about this maybe we need a course and suddenly here's this guy offering to teach it so they they said to me, could you send a syllabus? And I thought, the syllabus? Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote one and they said, okay, this looks good. And I thought, it does. <laughs> but I, I taught it. So so I know I know what it's all about. Now at first I thought there was a a real possibility that Bitcoin could take over as the international currency. Mm-hmm. Because there were an increasing number of merchants who were saying they accepted Bitcoin as payment. And I was thinking, well, one of them was Whole Foods. And I don't know exactly what they were accepting it for. I don't think they were accepting it for all purchases, but maybe coupons or something. And Amazon bought Whole Foods. And I thought, you know, if Amazon says that they're going to accept Bitcoin in payment for goods, the game's over it will become the accepted currency alongside the dollar and maybe even replace the dollar. But then as I was teaching the course or as I was preparing to teach it, I discovered 
that there's a very low ceiling on how many transactions can be transacted with Bitcoin. Because of the limitations of this, uh, the blockchain, which is just a database designed for this particular purpose and that suddenly has become a big buzzword, but it's not a very capable database. And it's not capable of doing more than about seven transactions per second. And if it does that, the transactions become very expensive. You're competing to get included in the next block of transactions, approved transactions with other transactors. So it it, it just won't work. And it it, uh, it hasn't. There haven't been very many. It, and yet it does seem to be um, used for, for illicit transactions and um the 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 underworld and the in the dark net it seems to be just rife with transactions that are conducted in bitcoin so i mean when i looked at it i thought well maybe this is just the currency of the criminal class and that just like any other other currency you evaluate well how much is it worth by looking at well how big is that you know, country's currency and how does that compare to the supply? And maybe you could, you know, come up with a kind of an exchange rate between, you know, this criminal uh, criminal currency and and other currencies. But um, but you don't think that it's even feasible for that kind of limited purpose. It, it is uh, useful for uh, for this underworld uh, and. Uh, the best way to see that very clearly is to read a book which I I, I read in parallel with uh, Michael Lewis's book about FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. I think the title of the book is "Number Go Number Go Up" or something like that by Zeke Foe or possibly Fox. I don't know how he pronounces it. And that that uh, book. Uh, follows, it didn't become as popular, I'm sure, as Michael Lewis's book, not only because Michael Lewis is so well known, but be, but because instead of FTX or Bitcoin, uh, Zeke Foe or Fox followed the uh, cryptocurrency called Tether, which is uh, supposedly uh, a stable coin. That is to say, it retains its value relative to the dollars, supposedly pegged to the dollar. So it's equivalent to a dollar, supposedly. It's not really well backed. You can't really trust it, but it's been surviving, as he shows, for many years. It is used. You know, the problem with the illicit transactions is that most of the Bitcoin was invented to supposedly decentralize the process of transacting in money and to take it away from centralized institutions like big banks. But inevitably, and this, this happens in, in many things, centralization kind of just, it, it just sets in. So right. FTX was a centralized right. cryptocurrency exchange and right. you couldn't exchange fiat currency like U.S. dollars for Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency on that exchange without telling them who you are. So it's all completely traceable. Right. But Tether 
doesn't trade, it probably does, but most of it wasn't trading on a centralized cryptocurrency exchange. So it's very hard to trace. And in in Zeke Fo's book, I was astounded to see what it was being used for, being used for uh, uh, human trafficking in the sense that people are enticed to apply for jobs and then they're hired and then they're basically shut in to places with bars in Cambodia where they're forced <laughs> to do things like sell cryptocurrencies over the phone. Uh-huh. But, they're, but they're basically imprisoned. Right. It's just, just astounding. Well, I was, uh, you know, I was very taken by your review of uh, Michael Lewis's book. And uh, I wonder, are there lessons to be learned from the Sam Bankman experience i mean what what um i mean you seem very down on the whole notion of crypt of, of bitcoin but i mean does crypto have a place in the future and what what can we learn from that whole experience i said something uh, along about this to somebody recently i can't remember what what the conversation was about and they seemed surprised because they they said oh the the cfo of uh of Hong Kong, the uh, uh, what? Forget his title. Uh, was talking to me the other day, and he said he thinks that this uh, cryptocurrency is really going to be a big deal. And I, I, I said, really? And then later, I thought, wait a minute, what he said confused because what he was probably talking about was the national uh, digital currency. Mm-hmm. Which, which China is experimenting with and other countries are experimenting with, that those aren't cryptocurrencies. Right. They, they right. bear no resemblance to cryptocurrencies. But I think people confuse them with a cryptocurrency. Yeah, I, I you know, it's that that's part of this whole dematerialization of money. I mean, you know, money's gotten, you know, used to be big chunks of gold that you'd have to carry to to buy a house and then it got smaller and easier to carry and then now it's paper money and then now it's just electrons on a on a on a ledger sheet. So, but I think you're right. I think it's it's that's fundamentally a very different trend which may you know not stop versus crypto which is a which is a whole different thing. So so we're just about out of time. So I wanted to to know if you could sort of I mean it, clearly you're a little bit uh skeptical of uh you know expert advice as to where to put your money but for the person that's out there struggling with how to get by, how to live on their 401k uh balance or maybe their 401k and the whole, the equity in their home and Maybe they got social security, maybe the thing. What kind of advice would you have for them in terms of how to manage your money going forward? Well, you know, the the advice uh, for people that are are struggling with their finances is advice that, of course, anybody can give. And, of course, anybody will find hard to take. And it's, you know, basically uh, pulling, you know, tighten your belt. You know, don't don't overspend so that you have to get loans because over time you, you, it would just make things worse. And uh, tighten your belt enough so that you can save ten percent, fifteen percent of your 
annual intake every year and put it in an index fund, uh, assuming that you're not going to use it. Well, you must assume that you're putting this away and you're not going to use it for years. Right. In, well, that's, I which, mean, that works during the accumulation phase. It's the decumulation phase where many of us are, are now entering, where it becomes challenging. And I think what you said is, is, is really very, you know, consistent with what I've been always saying, which is that fundamentally living in retirement is a, it's an asset liability matching problem or a cash flow matching. You've got your future cash needs and your future cash flow coming in. And too many people focus on where to put your assets and how to how to make that the money come in and not enough on what are the, what are the liabilities and what am I going to owe and what am I going to need this money for and how do I make those two uh, consistent? So Yes, yes. And it's not, it's the decumulation phase is, is complicated by, by the fact that there are all these uh, these alternatives like annuities. An annuity is a, is a, is a good idea, uh, but people don't like the idea that they it's it's locked up. They can't. Well, it's it's longevity insurance is what it is, and and it's. Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, I, I I talk about the risks in accumulation. How do you mitigate them? Well, one of the best ways to address a risk is to insure against it. And fortunately, there are products like annuities that you know give you pure longevity insurance. Now, there's there's um, there's not a lot of other pure insurances like that for a lot of the other risks, but, um, you know, there's, yeah. there's some. So. Yeah. But by the way, I, I, I want to uh, uh, correct what I said about becoming an actuary because I, I sensed a little bit of disappointment in you uh, about that. I didn't want to do that. Well, I was already doing something else and I really <laughs> didn't, I didn't want to be in any financial field at all. I really wanted to be in what I thought I was going to do in the first place, which was some kind of technology. And finally did. I threw over. I took more than 80% drop in in uh, right. uh, pay to go into solar energy research. But uh, but but I do want to say that the, the best math is done by actuary. So there's, there's uh, one of my articles, uh, I think you I think you've mentioned it. Uh, points out that th there are, I don't know, possibly hundreds of articles written about rebalancing in the finance journals. And they're all, I mean, they're just, I don't want to use, you know, I don't want to use a four-letter word, but they, they're they are just garbage. You know, they're all, they, they, they do some math and then they say, this shows that. And no, it, do it does not. The math <laughs> does, does not show what they conclude. Nobel Prize winner in economics, Paul Romer, who, by the way, is the, the, the son of the governor of Colorado, who, whom I knew, um, the former governor of Colorado. Uh, but uh, he, he calls this mathiness. It sounds like it looks like math, but it isn't really quite. It's, you know, <laughs> but it feels right. Feels right. Feels like it must imply this thing that I already believed, even though it doesn't. So yeah. anyway, all these articles in the finance journals about rebalancing, I haven't found one yet. That's any good. The, the the best one was by Bill Bernstein, but it but it was wrong. But it was wrong for subtle reasons, uh, and it wasn't even in a finance journal. But then I discovered an article that was absolutely right about rebalancing, hardly ever referenced in any finance journal article, and it was in an actuarial journal. Well, we, and it was we... it was excellent. This article. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I mean, I really 
the the, uh, the support and endorsement for for our industry because I, I I do believe in actuarial science, but it's wonderful to get you know real mathematicians like you to and and again I, I do consider actuarial actuaries real mathematicians, just applied mathematicians as opposed to um, pure mathematicians. Right. So. Um, but I really, really appreciate you coming on there, and it's been just a joy to to hear your insights. And um, best of luck to you. Okay. Well, thank you, Pete, and uh, hope to be in touch again uh, yes. soon. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for such a fascinating, wonderful conversation. All the way from Hong Kong, it's eight a.m. or eight forty-eight there now, and it's eight forty-eight p.m. where I am. And Pete is three hours behind in Cali, so it's very cool to be so international with you all and having these high-powered conversations uh, for pe- lay people like myself and others. We really uh, love the insight, even if we don't understand the details. So, <laughs> thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Pete. Thank you to our audience. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show. You are listening to Money Mountaineering with actuary and author Peter Newarth and our wonderful guest tonight, Michael Edises, an accomplished mathematician and economist, author of The Big Investment Lie and The Three Simple Rules of Investing. So thank you all. Stay tuned for another episode of Money Mountaineering next month. We look forward to seeing you. Take good care. <laughs>